Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join me today. Among the things we will be discussing in this hour of the program, um, I'm not sure the exact dates, but it is the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. And uh, I got to tell you, I marvel a little bit about this because, hey, man, I was there, man. No, I wasn't. I was nowhere near Woodstock, although I was alive. But thankfully, my parents uh, were good responsible people (laughs) doing their best to raise little three-year-old me at the time without uh, too many drugs, sex, and rock and roll interfering with their parenting style there. It's just, it's so interesting to see this from, uh, well, actually from the vantage point of 25 years after the 25th anniversary of Woodstock. See, back then, my wife and I were newlyweds, well, fairly newlyweds. We'd been married for a couple of years, had just moved into our first house. We were homeowners, upwardly mobile, you know, getting our, our first start in life. And I remember in uh, 94, boy, there was, there was a lot of uh, hoo-ha about the, the 25th anniversary of Woodstock. And, of course, MTV was all over it and, and whatnot. Very amazing. It was supposed to happen again this year. There's going to be a 50th anniversary celebration. Guess what? Didn't happen. In fact, let's go ahead. Let's dive into this a little bit here. Why couldn't Woodstock happen? And I think this is a fair question to ask because maybe another way of asking this is what changed in the last 50 years that makes it impossible for a music festival like Woodstock to happen? Well, for starters, drugs are illegal. Um, Well, actually, point of uh, clarification here, at least in, what, 30-some-odd states, 36 states, there is a degree of legality for marijuana. Now, I grant you, there was other stuff going on there. There was LSD and, and other things, but those things were illegal then as well. What else? What could it be? What else has changed? Uh, well, uh, we were at war back then. No, we're we're at war now. It's just nothing big enough that's, that uh, they're having to draft people. But uh, we've been at war constantly, at least for the last 18 years. What else could it be? Well, you see, Brian, 50 years ago, there was a time of cultural upheaval. Oh, and there's none of that today. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I see it. We're, we perfectly get along. We are more homogenous now than we have ever been in the history of the Republic. All right. Sarcasm off. See, a lot of the same elements are there in terms of uh, does rock and roll still exist? Okay, you may have me there, <laughs> at least. Uh, but, but strictly speaking, who can say that the music then was all rock and roll? I mean, you covered a lot of different varieties from folk up to uh, what would count as, as heavy metal. In fact, I think there was quite a bit of variety in the music there. Attitudes certainly have changed, but I think one of the biggest, most noticeable changes has to be that uh, there weren't as many regulations. Government was not as oppressive and ever-present as it is today. And I promise you, if there was something that made it unprofitable 
for organizers to put together and pull off a Woodstock, Woodstock 50 celebration. It's because there were too many fees, too many permits, too many legal hoops that had to be jumped through in order to accommodate it. Up to and including, you know, how are we going to pay for police to be here and providing security around the clock? And is an environmental impact statement uh, there. You know, we've got to fill one of those out and that's going to take, you know, months and hundreds of thousands of dollars to fund the study. And you get the picture, though. Now, there's a great article on intellectualtakeout.org from Martin Cothran. And so if, if you have fond memories of Woodstock, I'm going to warn you right now, he, he may tear it down a little bit. So be prepared. Some feels could get hurt. The article's titled Spouting Platitudes About Woodstock Won't Change What It Actually Was. He says it's the 50th anniversary of Woodstock and we're already being subjected to dreamy reminiscences about it from people whose accounts can't really be relied upon because they were based largely on memories of people who were in a drug-induced stupor. So if you were on drugs, he says, Woodstock seemed great. Of course, if you were on drugs, anything seemed great, even a Grateful Dead concert. In fact, he says, I'm pretty sure the only way you could think a Grateful Dead concert was great is if you were in a drug-induced stupor. Now, according to the popular account, Woodstock was three days of peace, love, and music. Actually, make that three days of sex, drugs, and squalor. Woodstock was rain-sodded, dirty, and loud. It was the coming-out party for the worst generation, not to be confused with the greatest generation. The greatest generation was great at a lot of things, but apparently raising responsible adults was not one of them. In fact, he says, I hold Dr. Spock personally responsible for the entire spectacle. The greatest generation was notable for an event that was also rain-dotted, or rain-sodded, dirty and loud, but it didn't involve drugs, music, or self-indulgence. It was called World War II. It was conducted not by people with long hair and bad attitudes, but by people with crew cuts and gratitude for what they had. It involved sacrifice, loud explosions, risking your life for the sake of your country. In World War II, if you found yourself in a field and you couldn't remember what was happening, it was probably because you were injured fighting for your country, not because you'd taken the wrong kind of hallucinogen. Woodstock was a three-day-long gathering of spoiled adolescents who were members of the first generation of Americans to be coddled by their parents and who had way too much money and comfort. Woodstock was their selfish attempt to evade responsibility and gratify themselves without having to face the consequences. In fact, several major musical acts refused to attend. When someone explained the concept to Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, he said quite soberly that he didn't want to go because I don't like hippies. When Bob Dylan, who was an actual resident of the nearby town of Woodstock, was asked about it, he said, I didn't want to be a part of that thing. I just thought it was a lot of kids out and around wearing flowers in their hair, taking a lot of acid. I mean, what can you think about that? One group that was asked but did not make it to the event was Iron Butterfly, which is ironic because it would have fit nicely into the idea of Woodstock, given that its songs were long, pointless, and deafening. But now that the hippies of the 1960s have taken over our culture, spouting platitudes about peace and love that were as sanctimonious as they were lacking in any real meaning, serves a useful purpose. Reminiscences about Woodstock helped to legitimize the self-gratification and evasion of responsibility it ultimately helped to produce. Martin Cothran says we would all be better off if the people in the Woodstock crowd would have stayed home, done their chores, worked hard, 
and tried to be productive members of society. Oh, and he says getting a haircut wouldn't have hurt either. Man, talk about a spoil sport. Although it does kind of make you wonder. Woodstock was definitely a coming out party for the counterculture movement. No doubt about it. And that counterculture movement, for better or for worse, is what's uh, uh, currently teaching a lot of our young people on our nation's college campuses. You find a lot of them in political positions, community organizers and such. Some of them still have some fairly radical viewpoints. Well, I, I wouldn't tell you, don't have fun, don't have your music festival, but it does raise an interesting question. What if they had stayed home, done their chores, worked hard, and tried to be productive members of society? The only downside I see to this, and I say this as a, a committed audiophile, we'd have missed out on some really great music. Because frankly, there, there, was some, there were some phenomenal acts that, that took off career-wise, following their involvement with Woodstock. Would they have done so otherwise? I don't know. But I can definitely appreciate the music. I'm sad to see that the 50th anniversary celebration of Woodstock didn't happen, but not because I had any, any intention of going. It just would have been neat to see that uh, maybe somebody could pull off a really remarkable music festival. I don't take quite the hard line that Martin Cothran does, that uh, all these people would have been better off if they'd have been fighting World War II. But I definitely think that uh, I think that they had some some phenomenal opportunities to to do another festival. But I bet you the regulation was the biggest thing that got in the way. If if it wasn't, I would be shocked. And if someone can show me otherwise, I will, I will gladly eat my words with both hands. I think there's, there are a lot of things, though, that uh, we would find the uh, overabundance of government that we currently enjoy tends to get in the way of, uh, of us being able to just pursue our happiness. Mind you, I'm talking about this in peaceable ways that do not harm other people or their property. It's a shame that I even have to clarify such a thing, but such are the times in which we live. All right, we'll take a quick break. We will be back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 is the number. All right. I'm going to since since I've been referencing a little pop culture to get things started this hour, I'm going to stick it with this uh this approach and talk about Ferris Bueller's Vocation. How long has this movie been out? What was that? 1986 that uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh came out. Fantastic film. It's actually held up uh, pretty well. Um, you know, it's, it looks a little dated, but it's not terrible. But there's a terrific article by Glenn Moots about Ferris Bueller's vocation that raises some interesting possibilities, not just for, you know, this fictional character of Ferris Bueller, but 
but for anybody who feels bored with what they're doing with their life. Glenn Moot says in an attempt to confront the student loan debt bubble, most Democratic presidential candidates have promised some variant of free college. And Republicans are countering with their own proposals, citing a statistic that the cost of a four-year degree doubled between 1986 and 2016. Marco Rubio proposes to regulate or privatize tu- tuition funding sources. Given the nature of political pandering in a democracy, Glenn Moots says we can reasonably expect that no candidate or proposal will acknowledge the trade-offs that happen in countries that treat college as a public good. The elimination of intercollegiate athletics or luxurious student accommodations, for example. Americans may get buyer's remorse when they realize that fewer students attend colleges in countries where post-secondary education is provided by the government. The real solution to college costs may therefore have less to do with who pays or what is provided to those who attend, but instead with why so many students attend college in the first place. And the explanation for our fascination with universal college enrollment, ironically enough, may be found in a classic film whose release date and its 30-year celebration parallel Rubio's status statistic, rather, and that is, <clears throat> excuse me, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, for those unfamiliar with the 1986 film, high school seniors Ferris Bueller, his girlfriend Sloan, and his best friend Cameron successfully play hooky from high school in order to tour Chicago's finest attractions. At the end of their remarkable adventure, Cameron says to Sloan, I don't know what I'm going to do. College, she replies. Yeah, but to do what? Sloan replies, Cameron admits he's not particularly interested in anything at all, and the vivacious Sloan replies, me neither. Now, this dialogue reveals a stubborn problem afflicting not only the typical American teenager, but also many others who've long since forgotten their locker combinations. They have no sense of vocation. They don't know what they are supposed to be doing in the world. John Hughes' classic comedy was actually a critique of our all-too-prevalent solution to this, rather, which is send everyone to college. In fact, the exchange above about college makes more sense if connected with other scenes in the film. When Ferris feigns illness to get out of going to school, for example, a faux lament reveals what's at stake. He says to his mother, I have a test today. I have to take it. I want to go to a good college so I can have a fruitful life. (laughs) When Ferris talks to the audience later in the film, he admits college will not only break up their friendships, but also the likelihood of his marrying Sloan. In another scene, Ferris foresees the anxiety that plagues aimless college students and says of his friend Cameron, he can't be wound this tight and go to college. His roommate will kill him. In the original script, Hughes continued this motif. What motivates Ferris and his friends to stop and look around is not just their dislike of high school, but the looming threat of college. A window display in the store where Ferris's mother works features a mannequin father congratulating a mannequin son who's dressed in a mortarboard and gown, while the accompanying sign encourages saving for college. In another deleted scene during a cruise down the Chicago River, Cameron and Ferris compare the start of college to nuclear holocaust. These events are equally terrible, they conclude, but college is more certain. Now, of course, there's no reason to think that the increasingly popular march to college will impart any sense of vocation to Sloan, Cameron, or any other student arriving without direction in the first place. Cameron and Sloan have spent almost their entire lives in school, and school has prepared them for, well, what else but more school. 
Our presidential candidates can promise Cameron and Sloan a free trip to college, but they cannot help them know what to do once they get there or after they graduate. Now, to justify the crushing work schedule or debt load increasingly demanded by four or more years at college, students increasingly default to useful degrees like business or engineering or health professions that now greatly outnumber traditional studies, such as the humanities or social sciences. Whereas the number of baccalaureate degrees in philosophy has varied by only 20% since 1971, degrees in parks, recreation, leisure, and fitness studies have increased by 3,000% in the same time frame. Whether or not such degrees guarantee a satisfactory income, one still has to find satisfaction in the work itself. Ryan Avent argues that millions of young men have abandoned the workforce altogether, preferring virtual achievements in video games to the rewards of a typical job. Other 20-somethings simply tolerate unserious and transitory employment through their emerging adulthood to pay for a second adolescence without marriage or children. Work has become like Glaucon and Adiamantus' initial conception of justice in Plato's Republic, a means to an end, and a particularly individualistic end rather than an end in itself. And so he asks the question here, how can we find satisfying work including work that doesn't require everyone to go to college. While relativistic and subjective solutions like work is what you make it or follow your passion aren't entirely wrong, they don't ground work in any objective or shareable concept of flourishing or beatitude. Now, unfortunately, some of our earliest answers about flourishing in the Western canon, drawn from Greek and Roman philosophy, hinder rather than help. Aristocracy and slavery in the ancient world blunted the value of work. In the Republic, Plato compares irrational and shameless appetites to a money-making class. The city's leaders are shielded from the corruption of work, insofar especially as the love of wealth begins a precipitous decline into dissolution and tyranny. Disciplined but avaricious oligarchs raise dilapidated or dissipated rather and undisciplined children and entice others into debt by leveraging what little capital they have. Plato's student Aristotle acknowledges that wealth is necessary for generosity or magnificence, but the only virtue pertaining to good work, art, is eclipsed by leisurely contemplation. Only slaves are born to manual work. Now Cicero's de office prescribes both virtue and an active life, even using commerce as a case study for moral reasoning. In his imagined dialogues between Diogenes and Antipater, however, Cicero exalts an abstract brotherhood of man over the merchant's defense of market prices and the cost of capital, and he hopes his son will pursue a political life. Now here the article swerves into talking about work as service to God and neighbor. How many people approach their decisions of what kind of a career they will have with that focal point? Christians discouraged such classical ambitions in favor of work prayerfully and providentially considered. Ora et labora. Ancient slavery faded. Leisurely aristocracy was tempered. In his confessions, Augustine's classical ambition for status gave him less happiness than the mirth of a drunken beggar. He, St. Thomas, and the schoolmen praised ordinary labor. In the 14th century, Dominican Johann Tauler and Deacon Geert Groot anticipated Luther's extension of vocation beyond the monastery walls to include ordinary work. 
Though Luther's robust idea of the calling has its shortcomings, particularly its criticism of commerce, capital, and profits, he imparts divine significance to our work. Speaking to the common run of men whom ancient philosophers held in disdain, Luther argued that God is pleased with a man who works at his trade for the nourishment of his body or for the common welfare. Luther's suggestion was that work is a catalyst for virtue, an obvious point to which the ancients seem oblivious. Calvin likewise cast work as an instrument for virtue, particularly self-denial, and argued that vocation was a gift of the Holy Spirit. Even the chambermaid sweeping, however much it might be disparaged by the world, was a holy and pure oblation, if performed as an offering to God. Oh, there's more. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is Living Love, this is uh, Loving Liberty. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Who'd have known that uh, Ferris Bueller's day off could lead us down the path of some very classical Western thought. But uh, here we are, and there's a marvelous article that I'm sharing with you. This is on intellectualtakeout.org. It's from Glenn Moots, and he's walking us through. First of all, it starts as a question with uh, with Ferris Bueller and a couple of his friends, uh, undecided. They know they have to go to college, but they're not looking forward to it. Why? Because they don't have a why for why they are going to college. They haven't figured out what do they want to do with their lives. It's just like this rite of passage. Well, everybody has to. And frankly, I think that accurately describes how a lot of people think of it these days. Yeah, you got to go to college. You want to get anywhere. But when you start talking about what you are trying to do with your life. Now you're talking about vocation. It's not just what you do for a living. It's what you were, what you are exceptionally good at doing or what brings you joy. What, what you could describe as purpose in life combined with your ability to make a living from it. I'm probably doing a very poor job of, of explaining this, but people who live their life working toward vocation rather than just simply, I got to find a job, somebody employ me so that I can pay the bills. There's a, there's a depth and there's a happiness there that you won't find elsewhere. And here Glenn says, Puritan William Perkins, whose popularity surpassed Calvin's and Shakespeare's in his day, published an elaborate treatise on vocation back in 1605. Perkins emphasized that God distinguished persons by their particular or special providence, meaning their individual vocation. These individual vocations sustained our general callings to our neighbors and to God. What made work valuable was not the social status of that work, but the heart of the worker. Every calling, Perkins wrote, must be fitted to the man and every man fitted to his calling. These individual vocations work together to sustain the common goods or estates of the family, political society and the church. Vocations did not exist outside of these estates. Perkins, therefore, did not envision us working for a macro economy or an abstraction as vacant as the voice of Ben Stein's economics teacher in the film, Bueller, Bueller. 
Bueller. So John Mueller, therefore, rightly argues that laboring for family and neighbor was the scholastic basis of economics, not some gross domestic product. Now, centuries of Christian thinking, therefore, gave work dignity and purpose. But the commercial republic and industrial revolution presented new challenges. Arguably, nowhere are these challenges more evident than America. Alexis de Tocqueville's Americans appear orderly, moral, and religious, but they are given to injurious individualism, manic materialism, careless conformity, softness of spirit, pestering poverty, and omniscient avarice. Nagged by fear, envy, restlessness, and imperfectly satisfied desire, their work improves everything but degrades themselves. Tocqueville's disciplined Democrat resembles uh, Plato's oligarch, willing to deploy his reason only in search of wealth. But that wealth is rarely enjoyed because it is subordinated to a thousand everyday desires bought low to sell high. The bored soul grows restless and agitated amidst the exaltation of the senses. Tocqueville is so frustrated by his experience with American Christians that he wonders... If the growth of Christianity was owed more to Roman luxury and Epicurean philosophy than to violent persecution. Contemporary social science offers a few band-aids. Deirdre McCloskey, for example, touts bourgeois virtues. Now, these seem like a means to productive ends rather than ends in themselves. A new wave of psychologists promote work-related virtues like grit or flow. Martin Seligman's recovery of virtue and flourishing is now institutionalized in workplaces through positive organizational scholarship. But such reimagined virtues retain the means-ends problem. Do managers institutionalize these virtues as ends in themselves or as means to greater production and profit? So back to the movie. Glenn Moots reminds us when Ferris tells or calls Cameron, who's miserable in bed, to rouse him for their big adventure, he tells him, you're not dying, you just can't think of anything good to do. While we envy the three friends' day off, their problem would have been solved more by a vocation than a vacation. The problem may become even more complicated if Al and a proposed universal, or if AI rather, and a proposed universal basic income provide a very long day off. We must still find work to do in the world. We must answer the call of our vocations. Before getting out of bed, Cameron responds to Ferris by singing a modified few bars of an old spiritual. When Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go. Well, he says if Cameron never found his vocation, his days must have felt as futile as making bricks without straw. Now, I get it. This is kind of lofty. And Glenn Moots covers a lot of philosophical territory in here. But there's some relevance for you and me. And whether you are retired or whether you are starting a career or you're somewhere in between, maybe you're maybe you're still looking for whatever that is that is going to be that piece of the puzzle clicking into place and, and, and making your life feel like, ah, this is what I was born to do. I think this is a healthy way to approach what you will do with your life. I would so much rather see people approaching it from a vocational standpoint than simply, well, I've just got to get in the rat race and work hard and make lots of money. I would love for you to make lots of money. But why not make lots of money doing something that you actually feel a personal, unique sense of mission? Like I was born with, you know, talents, skills, passions. 
Or maybe let me put that another way. I was born with an aptitude which worked upon and improved upon and developed become talents and skills that can be marketable. I think that's probably more in line with how it works. I, I know very few people who are born virtuosos. You know, Mozart may have been a good example of that, but most of us have to work at what we do. But again, the question comes, comes back to how many people approach it from the standpoint of I do what I do because I feel like I was born to do this or I feel like this is, this is something that is uniquely mine. I know people who have been agonizing over this for years. Once upon a time, it was me. I spent long hours trying to decide what can I do with my life. Now, keep in mind, this was after having spent a majority of my career simply being carried with the current. Yeah, things are good. You know, it's all right. I got a decent job. You know, I'm making okay money. I'm, you know, not starving. I like what I do. But it wasn't until someone pointed out to me that, uh, hey, it's, it's okay to like what you do. But if you're just kind of being carried along with the current and waiting to see where it takes you, you may be missing some really great opportunities. And once I came upon that, uh, that understanding that there was a direction that I could take, well, I, I want to tell you, that's when everything clicked into place and life has been nothing but an endless stream of sunshiny days with birds on the windowsill singing each morning when I wake up. No, actually, with that realization, that's when the hard work began. That's when I first had to acknowledge how little I actually knew in terms of becoming what I would like to become. And then there was that, that was compounded by the question, but what do I really want to become? Do I want to be the next Casey Kasem? At one time, that seemed like a very feasible goal. But my heart took me in a different direction. And when I started doing talk radio, I realized, you know what? Music radio is not where, I, where my heart is. I like the talk thing. So what next? Well, I'm going to be the next Rush Limbaugh. Nope. There's only one Rush Limbaugh. And then thankfully, I had this dear friend who approached me and became a mentor to me who said, I notice you write. I think you should work on developing your writing skills. And that's something I've been working on for the last 15 years or more. So today, I actually have a pretty good idea of what I'm supposed to do. You ready for this? You sitting down? Here's what my job is. Regardless of where I'm working, regardless of how I'm earning a paycheck, I am doing my best to employ whatever talents or gifts or skills God has equipped me to develop so that I can be a trusted voice of truth and insight. It doesn't matter if I'm, you know, teaching a Sunday school class. It doesn't matter if I'm, if I'm, you know, stocking shelves at a grocery store. Or if I'm sitting behind this microphone. That's how I'm going to approach everything that I do. Oh, and there's another little shift in my thinking. You know who I work for? I work for God. Now, sometimes... The work he has me do, the assignment that I'm given, changes. But I've learned to trust my boss, 
And when those changes come, I roll with it. And it always works out because I'm approaching it as a vocation and not just a job. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. This is the home stretch of the second hour of the show. If you're listening to us on podcast, thank you so much. Please do me a small favor and share this at your first opportunity. For so long, I was uh, I was a skeptic of podcasting. Well, you know, podcasting's all fine and dandy, but it ain't live radio, you know. And now I'm realizing that uh, live radio, much like the newspaper, isn't gone, but it's uh, it's definitely taking a backseat to a more convenient way for people to hear content that they wish to hear. And podcasting is uh, the delivery vehicle for that content. So thanks again for being part of our audience. Thanks for helping others find the Loving Liberty Radio Network and uh, the, the message of liberty contained herein. There are so many great people out there who are, are working tirelessly to spread the principles, the practices of liberty, to, to shore up the people who may feel like, oh, is, is it worth it? Is it worth making a stand? Because it just seems like everything is aligned against us. So many people believe in this manufactured narrative of, no, everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Why, the founders are probably jealous that they didn't create it this way in the first place, and we had to find our way here. No, I actually know people who seriously believe that. We're much smarter and of much higher character than the founding generation ever was that's how i can tell somebody who's never actually read any of the writings of the founding generation and if you point that out it's almost a sure bet you'll get well but they owned slaves so (laughs) that's the world they were born into and if you read their writings you would understand they also struggled with that question just because they didn't get it solved in their lifetimes doesn't uh, doesn't mean that they were bad people. And truth be told, one day we're going to look back and realize, holy cow, we had some pretty big blind spots ourselves. I wonder how future generations will look at us. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello. Hello there. Um, I just uh, had, had some thoughts and... Uh, I guess uh, I kind of wanted to share my experience so far with, with what you're talking about before the break. Um, On vocation? Yeah. Okay, yeah, tell me your take. Um, you know, I, I really I really agree with, you know, what you're saying about, um, you know, how people need to, to find something that they are good at or can be good at that is meaningful to do. Um, I, in my experience, you know, as, as you know, I, I drive truck hauling hazardous waste, and you know that that in and of itself is is pretty rewarding for me because you know I, I get paid to go all over the country and you know keep some really really nasty stuff out of everyone's water. You know, I, I feel pretty good about that, and then. You know, every now and then I'll haul lumber or, or food or whatever else, you know, to build people's houses and 
uh, keep the store shelves filled and, and what have you. Um, but, you know, but something else that I've been able to do, um, kind of a interesting experience about it, I, I went to mechanic school after I graduated from high school. And, you know, I, I've always had an interest in cars and and trucks and everything, and so I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go to school and I'll be a mechanic. I discovered at mechanic school that I did not want to do that for my job every day of my life. Makes sense. Um, you know, I, I just, I've always been more fascinated with interesting cars, you know, not beige Toyota Camry. That got very boring very quickly. Um, and so I figured, you know, well, you know, I spent all this money on tools and um, schooling. You know, at least I can use it to keep my own cars running. But in recent years, I've discovered that as a vocation, it's really rewarding for me to be able to help my friends and neighbors learn how to take care of things themselves or, you know, if, if someone's in a bind and, and has something broken down, I love being able to say, yeah, I can fix that for you. That, that's, that, that's, I, I think that's the reason I felt like I needed to go to mechanic school is, is so I could help my friends and neighbors. And you do. I will attest to this. You do. Okay. <laughs> Man, I appreciate your insights on this. So, so for the sake of our listeners, what 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 part of this great nation are you traveling through right now? Um, I just crossed into Washington from Oregon. I'm down in the Columbia River Gorge. Nice. Well, safe travels, my friend, and thanks so much for weighing in. All right, you too. 801-331-8113. I love what he was saying. I love his take on this. And look, for some people, this is a very scary thought because they've invested years of their lives. I mean, look, for people who particularly have gone and got professional training, you know, they feel like I am locked in to a certain thing. And I felt that way, too. I really did. I mean, I felt like, well, you know, radio is all that I've done, so I guess that's really what I need to do. And and I'll tell you what shifted my thinking. And I don't want this to sound like bragging because, frankly, I was as amazed as anybody at the process here. But when I really undertook a liberal arts education, in other words, I started reading and studying the great books of Western civilization, started getting more depth and breadth in what I was reading, and especially reading these old books, it forced me to see myself in a different light. And the big payoff for that came not in the form of an advanced college degree that opened every door that I ever knocked at, but um, it came, when was it? About eight years ago, when I was very unexpectedly laid off from my job. I mean, if you've never been blindsided by a, a you know a workforce reduction, getting your pink slip late on an afternoon, just out of the blue. It's really quite an experience. And, and I'm not going to say it's necessarily a pleasant experience, but 
I was sitting there fat and happy, working away, getting ready to do some stuff with uh, one of my coworkers. And I see the general manager come in and he's got the operations manager with him. And both of them have a pretty grim look on their face. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? Talking to the ops manager because he was usually the most cheerful guy. And he just had that grim look on his face and just shook his head like, oh. And one of my coworkers said, what's going on? Is something wrong? And, and he just and the ops manager said, it's, it's not good. And sure enough, about 15 minutes later, both me and my coworker were kicking a pebble down the road because we had been let go just that fast. Bam. No job. Now, keep in mind. This was eight years ago, so we were still in one of the worst economies since the Great Depression. And you would think at that point that I would be pretty nervous about, oh, crap, what am I going to do? Where am I going to find another job? And I'll tell you what, if I was still thinking in terms of, well, I've got to find something, I've got to find some radio job, that's all I can do, that's all I know how to do, I would have been nervous. But because I had been engaged in that liberal arts education and because I was actively learning to think in broader terms, I also was seeing myself in a different light. And that was the first time I realized, you know what? There's a lot I could do. I can teach. I can write. I can sell. I can swing a hammer, which is what I did. Actually, the very next day, I was out there swinging a hammer with a dear friend who put me to work. So I had no idle time on my hands. And that was enough for me to start a couple of different career possibilities, which I I do this on the side now. I do freelance writing on the side. I do audio production on the side. But I was ready to hang up my headphones and say, that's it. It's You know what? It was a good run, but... I'm okay to walk away entirely from radio, which at the time I think I had been doing for about, uh, how long, 25 years, something like that, 24 years, I can't remember, it had been a long time. And when another radio station, another radio company came to me and said, hey, uh, about a month later they came to me and said, we, we hear that you're available and we'd like you to consider coming to work for us. I actually told them no and meant it. And they came back to me. It's the first time I'd really ever been in that position where I, I could honestly say, nah, I don't really need what you're offering. Now, long story short, they did persuade me to go back into the business, and that's why you're stuck with me. <laughs> Although there have been some other twists and turns along the way, but the bottom line is, you are not your job. But your vocation could be a very accurate representation of how you are making the world a better place, whatever that may be. Maybe give that a little bit of thought through this coming weekend. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.